My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined again by Zero HP Lovecraft. Um, Zero is one of the internet's most formidable posters, unofficial king of, of Twitter, um, anonymous, obviously, uh, and now a published author. Uh, welcome back, Zero. Thank you, Alex. It's great to be back. It's an exciting, I mean, it's, it's not this year, it was last year that you've um, published or uh, released your book, or what, what exactly is the, the new terminology? Because this is a very crypto-embedded situation. Did you release it? Did you publish it? How, how does one speak about such an event? Uh, I'm going to say some really theory cell bullshit right here and tell you that the release of my book has not been a peak, but a plateau, because... All of the, nearly all of the stories that are in it were written over the course of several years from 2016, late 2016, all the way up to 2021. So it was an ongoing process. All those stories are free. Anyone can read them uh, in their entirety on my blog. And the book, the physical book, has some short essays that attempt to kind of contextualize and bookend the actual fiction there. I think they're probably less interesting than the stories themselves, but hopefully they, they unify the work. And uh, for me, this is much more of a capstone. I resisted even sort of deigning to, to create a physical artifact for a long time, because I think that my work is native to the digital space. It wants to exist in hyperlinks and in found materials online. I saw the other day a fellow had gotten into an argument on Twitter, and he wrote a 30,000-word Substack article dissecting the argument, like fisking it, going tweet by tweet, and saying, and then this person said this about me, and then this person said that about me. It's like trying to freeze the ocean. You can't do that. And, And in a way, I feel the same about trying to publish a physical book of my work. But many people ask for it. And uh, the thing we've produced is something that I think is very rare. There's been an ongoing set of jobs around it from picking materials, working with a graphic designer to help me get all the types, and, and someone who uh, was skilled at typesetting to get like professional typesetting correct, just negotiating the fact that it has to be purchased using uh, BSV, the highly controversial crypto token. Like everything about this has been sort of strange and different. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's expected, <laughs> you know. It's uh, it contains eldritch monsters. I'm sure there were uh, a few eldritch monsters that you had to slay in the process. I mean, this is all new technologies. A lot of, um, yeah, I could imagine it can get complex and maybe <laughs> a bit a bit annoying at, at times. But the book is out. It's beautiful. It's just yeah, it's it's incredible, and it's one one of those things that I mean. 
you know, beside the NFT part, which is kind of still a bit murky, uh, at least for people like me, um, the object itself, um, the symbolic nature of owning such an object, kind of you're, you're essentially kind of buying into the the, the cult of zero HP or, or something like that. You own, it's almost like a religious object. It is rare. There's not many of them. Um, they're, they, they're kind of have, uh, there's two tiers, aren't there? There's like a, a leather bound and a vegan leather, leather bound version. <laughs> yes. We have to use that word. <laughs> so uh, there's, there's ways of, of participating in the cult. So it's, uh, it's I don't know. I, I like the fact that it's just, yeah, it, it looks the part. It really does look like I, I expected it to. It's it's really beautiful. It's something that could have been made like 200 years ago, and that's that adds to it. Thank you. Yes, I uh, actually am planning to uh, have a. The first copy will be delivered to me uh, probably next week. So I'm still no one has actually gotten their hands on it. There have been, as you know, as everyone knows, a lot of delays in the supply chain, and even. Uh, these sort of underground indie bespoke publishing houses are affected by that. Apparently our paper for the book was sitting in a Los Angeles uh, shipping crate somewhere, somewhere in, in either floating out in the bay or maybe in, I, I couldn't really tell you, for several months. So there was a bit of a delay in the production. Um, but they're going to ship very, very soon. And I actually, I can't wait to get my hands on the, the finished product. I've seen some test copies that are all blanks. So they have the binding, they have the, the stamped cover, but there's no text inside. But I haven't actually seen like the artifact yet. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, it looks great. It sounds great. <laughs> and uh, I can't wait for, for you to post pictures of it. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's, it, like you said, you know, it might be a plateau in terms of the actual work. Um, but it's, um, it's a, I don't know, step forward for meat, meat space, kind of <laughs> re-participating in meat space. I mean, how, how do you feel about this whole concept of return to meat space? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm terminally online. You've been probably terminally online for, for a longer time than I have. Um, is it overrated, the return to meat space? I think that uh, it's sort of, it's not overrated but it's kind of silly to pretend there's a dichotomy, right? Like the, we exist in both spaces. We are simultaneously, and this again sounds a bit woo, but we are, we are both spiritual and physical beings, right? And one of the things I have tried to consistently teach against, and it's one of the things I really like about Bap, because he, he gets this, I think, more than anyone else in the space, is that you cannot neglect the body and if you do, then the mind and the spirit will also wither. But it's it's also a fallacy, and it's also possible to overcorrect and say, oh, the only thing that matters is meat space. The only thing that matters is being, you know, just a brute, just a body. Like, ne to neglect the online space is essentially to neglect the spirit, because the online space is a, a nexus for all of our spirits to meet in some sense, irrespective of our bodies. But you can't, you can't neglect either, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's comforting to, <laughs> to hear because I, you know, there's, there's a lot of extreme takes, obviously. Um, on our side of Twitter, everywhere, uh, people tend to want to um, give you a, a panacea or, or something to, 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 to heal your soul because there's a lot of 
uh, hurt souls, a lot of, you know, people with problems, all sorts of mental issues who come to spaces like this at, you know, searching for something. And the thing is, there is a lot of truth. I mean, that's what attracted me to, to these spaces. There is a lot of truth, a lot of interesting stuff being said that is not said anywhere else. Uh, and I think that makes this, this space super, yeah, just amazing. Um, super amazing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's, 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 it is what it is. And I think uh, the, the space now kind of has um, a degree of maturity to it. There's so, it was, it's been super amazing for so long that it's attracted a lot of attention. And now we have schisms. Now we have big, big fights, power battles. Um, you know, it's, uh, there are factions um, and there, there are different I think like fault lines and directions that, uh, you know, that there are, you know, friend enemy distinctions between the, uh, within the dissident right. And I think one recent one was, um, kind of cads versus trads type thing. <laughs> um, and you know, people who you know, want to get married and have children, people who think that that's, you know, that's a uh, crazy, um, then there's still Trump and, you know, no more Trump and there's all sorts of things. I mean, what's, what do you see from, from your, you know, perspective at the center of the dissident right what does it look like and what's what's your feeling about these these new schisms well as i think you observed maybe before we started there is territory to defend now there's there's actually something that we're trying to protect however small and however sad uh it might be in some sense there there is something there there's i hate to to be so crass but there's some money in fact, to be made, there are people who are able to perhaps even sustain themselves as entertainers in the dissident right space. And I think all these schisms are really over incredibly small, incredibly minute things, really, when you come down to it. And the people I respect the most are the people who keep their heads clear about all of it. You could even say they're clear-pilled and they ignore all of the infighting and they instead just keep punching left. And one of my favorites there is actually John Winthrop. He is on a locked private account now. Some people probably remember him from his more famous public posting. He had a, an iconic gorilla icon. That guy just never stops punching left. He just, he, he mocks people who should be mocked. He tears down people who should be torn down. And there's a perspective on infighting that like iron sharpens iron. Uh, that's true to an extent. But the other way to look at it is that when you put a bunch of people in a ghetto, they never get out of it because they're all just constantly swinging at each other. And I don't look, no two people are going to perfectly agree on anything. Like if you just pick any two random people, even if they're brothers, they'll eventually find some point of doctrine to disagree about. And a lot of the time, what that looks like in practice versus how it looks like in their heads. In practice, they're the same. They're, they're allies. They have, you know, almost complete overlap in terms of how to live. But then because they're articulated differently and one person read one philosopher and one person read one of his contemporaries, of course, there's, there's going to be disagreement. And so on Twitter, you can take something like my favorite example is uh, inspired by a story from Borges called The Theologians. I probably mentioned this before. And it's about two theologians who disagree over whether the Holy Spirit is of exactly one substance as the Father and the Son, or whether the Holy Spirit 
is, you know, a distinct sort of third entity. And I, I have actually never said this word really, like bothered to look up how to say it, homo Ousian versus homo Ousian. And it just, it's, it's an ancient theological debate over, let's be real, something so abstract, it's probably meaningless. And these are the sorts of debates that people can get into on twitter.com. And uh, for me, because I have higher visibility and more surface area, I get attacked by everyone on every side, some people. And I try to negotiate that and I try not to spend too much time wallowing in the mud. Yeah. I I also think that people may have gotten a little bit too Schmidt-pilled. Like, I feel like... There are so many people just, you know, standing on the barricades, you know, just judging friend, enemy, friend, enemy. And then they're waiting for the the people who are kind of authorities in their particular sub niche to say, you know, go ahead. Yes. Destroy X. They are enemy. <laughs> so it's I mean, I also probably noticed this more because, like you said, you know, the, the larger your account gets, the, the more of a target you become rather than, you know, you're not you're not in in the trenches anymore. You know, <laughs> you're not, you know, shit posting. You are now something that someone has to have an opinion on, you know, because it's, you're, you're out there. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, you, you become more of a, a thing to, to be. Yeah. You, you become something abstract and people will literally reply to your tweets as if you're not there reading the replies, just talking about you in the third person. And to some degree, you have to accept that. Like this isn't some like corporate hug fest where I'm going to bring my whole self to Twitter. People are going to see you as an abstraction, as an object, as something that's just a feature of the landscape. And they're going to talk about you like you're not there because in a, in a very real way, you're not, even if you're reading it. I'm not going to sit here and cry and be like, oh, hello, there's a person behind the screen with feelings. Like, <laughs> come on. Even if that's true, uh, it's not a defense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... I could try it to, <laughs> to get people to, you know, feel sorry for me, guys. <laughs> but no, it's true. It's true. It's just a, the, the nature of um, of a profile anywhere online, and even in real life. You know, it's um, you know, the more the more people know about you, the you know, the, the more of a, an object you are, like you said, in, in their mind, and they can manipulate you which, uh, whichever way they want. And um, yeah. it is what it is. You know, it's a price we pay. What What I will say with regard to the Schmidt pill is that. Uh, there are purity spirals within any group, and you can see these kind of status competitions, these, these dick-waving competitions, where a lot of the ideas that we get from Moldbug now, people, even just saying that, there's a certain group of people who will just attack me, like, oh, Moldbug's a Jew or whatever. Like, I, I really don't care. But a lot of these ideas are extremely mainstream now. I I was visiting my parents and they were watching Fox News and, you know, there's some guy on Tucker talking about the who, who distinction. Like, these people, all of these pundits uh, are reading all of anonymous Twitter. They all know what's being said. They know the landscape. It's, it's, not like, it's not like politicians and news anchors and such live in some parallel dimension where Twitter doesn't exist. They're all there. They all see it. And so because of that, I think a lot of people have this conception in their mind of, oh, I'm a, I'm a dissident. I have a special dispensation of truth that sets me apart from the normie masses. I don't think anything in common with anyone who watches Fox or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm a real dissident. And the way they justify that and one of the ways that that manifests is they start getting really, really into reading about the history of the Third Reich. 
and there's no historian too obscure, and there's no perspective, there's no no commentary on World War II and Nazi Germany and all of that that is that is uninteresting to them. And so they're going to they will read these books and they'll just go as deep as they can. They'll find the person that no one else has heard of, and then they'll get into a slap fight and say, "You illiterate moron! How is it that you've never read such and such a German?" You know, this is going to completely blow the lid off of what everyone thinks about the Nazis if you just read that. So it's, and what's really going to happen? Are you going to get, you know, is the 500s new hot take on why uh, the good guys really lost World War II? Who is that for? It's purely for this sort of like incestuous circle. And, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't study and read those things. I think it's fascinating. I'll respect someone who wants to spurt out about history or whatever. Like you should be the most autistic person you can. You, you, you need to be playing with trains. You need to be like wearing weighted blankets. You need to be autistic. You need to just be constantly spurting about everything. But at the same time, be aware of why you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I do own a weighted blanket. I love it. <laughs> no, that was an autistic thing. <laughs> the more you know. Um, yeah, I it's 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 an interesting thing as well because you know when when you take that position and when you really want to fight that um, you know if that's your front line and you think that okay the, the key lies beyond you know understanding the history of the Second World War uh, that that also I feel like it's it's uh, it's adopting the enemy's frame as well you know you just kind of position yourself as as the antagonist I feel like that the best way forward in a way for the dissident right as much as it is possible. Is to just drop the frame completely. Just ignore it. It just, and just not, not in the sense that you know the Second World War, World War didn't happen or it didn't have. You know, it's, it's just another event in history. Treat it as, as such, and then also you know everything that that's downstream from that just has to be. You just have to you know harden your heart to their accusations and just live your life and completely you know have have your hierarchy of values that has you know, maybe something to do with this, you know, it's not, not completely in opposition, but is not, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's just not, doesn't reflect theirs as, as perfectly as, you know, as this, you know, obsessive contrarianism about World War II does. That's right. I mean, uh, at, the longer we go, the more generations of people we have between us and these events, the less it becomes reasonable to, assign this generational guilt to anyone. And the exact same thing could be said about slavery in America, right? Like we're supposed to believe that basically all Germans have this black stain on them forever, uh, you know, because of the events in World War II. We're supposed to believe that all white Americans have this, I shouldn't say black stain, no pun intended, on them forever because of the history of slavery in America. And like you have people trying to say that because of things that happened at this point, I don't think in anyone's living memory, uh, you know, we're all just supposed to pay a debt forever. This is a terrible way to think. There's just, there's no getting around it. And it's not complicated. We don't have to over-intellectualize it. It's a terrible way to think, period. Full stop. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, 
people are just just very much set in into playing playing this frame and uh i think that's kind of the heartening thing i see now there's a lot more going on uh in the in the dissident right because it's a, it's a bigger space like you said there's more more to fight over there's more money but there's also more directions like you know i just had um uh, owen uh, cyclops on he just he wrote really yeah Great guy. Beautiful book. Um, awesome. He's exploring other stuff. It's, like it's not even a political book. It's just, you know, someone having a different hierarchy of values and then presenting that in a beautiful way and in, in art. I think, you know, yeah, exactly. That's the next thing. You know, we need, I don't know, dissident right knitting clubs. <laughs> you know, every, every, every aspect of life needs to be um, reclaimed. And you just like unapologetically just say, okay, these are my values, you know. Uh, and we're, you know, you just kind of have to build your life uh, in parallel to theirs. And, uh, you know, they, they won't like it. <laughs> That's the problem with, yeah. with liberalism. But, uh, you know, the more people do it, it's, it seems to be the only, the only way to, to, to get out. Right. And the thing I love about Owen is that he's just so unrelentingly normal. Like he makes jokes about his dog, about his baby, about his wife, like simple things, things that are relatable, but have nothing to do with he, he's aware of the esoteric. He treats of these things, and actually, he, he does it very well. He's been very fascinated by all of them. But when you read his comics or you read his writing, he's just such a normal guy. And like, there's really nothing wrong with that. We need normal guys to just be normal. Like, that's you could say be normal in response to almost any of these weird abuses and gender cults and like, you know, racial cults that, that we see on the left like we should they you see people going oh touch grass go outside right and apparently what that's supposed to mean is like uh sorry for being crass but you probably saw me during the election season they had joe biden licking his ice cream and it said hey cut your eight-year-old's dick off man but like when one of these chapo like lefty types says touch grass that's really what they mean and when we say and, and it takes so much to just unpack and relate to people that actually that's not normal. People who go outside and touch grass don't do that, right? We should say be normal. Like you look at the um, this this Sam Brinton fellow, the Biden admin Department of Energy. I'm sure you saw this yeah. person going around. Like be normal, right? That's all we need. That that should be the message. That's a winning message. Just be normal. Yeah, well, you know, being normal means that there is something normative, and that is not allowed. Um, yeah, but it's 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 interesting because uh, being normal is essentially what works. Um, sounds super <laughs> retarded, but it just even like for example, I just give this example. Like my whole life, I was I've struggled with you know keeping a fitness regime, diets, and all sorts of stuff. And I've always gone like balls to the wall with everything I've done, and then the only thing that actually worked for me ever was just to try to be normal, like really take it easy and do things you know in a considered way and like relatively slowly, because all of these like extreme approaches where you just cut out entire food groups and then just just go to the gym seven seven days a week. Uh, it's, they sound like you know that like the, I feel like there's um, salvation is promised in extreme things like that where you know you kind of undergo a ritual and that's going to be transformational, but that doesn't really work. And I feel like a lot of people are just like throwing themselves against the wall with all sorts of crazy shit right now because there's no more normal. Um, and when when the actual salvation lies in I don't know and being normal. <laughs> 
to do what your great grandfather did to the extent that you can, which I mean, there are certain avenues that have been cut off and there are some things that there are privations that your great grandparents probably endured that you don't have to. And whether we should be grateful for that is maybe a complex question, but on the topic of this, like, this idea of salvationism, yeah, Wyndham Lewis wrote that what, what the common person wants is a violent spasm of action uh, to solve you know, their problems, followed mostly by a rhythmic repose. And that's exactly what all these things are, whether we're talking about an extreme diet or anything else, is the idea that you know, one sort of violent spasm can somehow solve the problem. This is the same fallacy really in a political revolution, right? It's like a one giant purge and everything's just going to be fine. And it's not, not even close. And if, if that violent purge comes again, which it very well could in our lifetimes, uh, everything will be worse for everyone, right? For a time. And there's, there's a possibility, there's a hope that maybe if we just get rid of all of these people who are abusing us at every level of the managerial regime. Oh, things will just improve. And I often feel a desire for that to happen. I don't think there's anyone who doesn't. Uh, amazingly, on both the left and the right, they think, oh, well, we just need to, you know, chop off every head of the hydra, and that'll somehow solve the problem. And it really wouldn't. What you get is anarchy, and then you'd get probably some kind of violent feudalism for a time maybe eventually a new order would arise that you know we could be proud of that could be like some kind of flourishing empire but these things as i i think everyone on our corner of twitter knows are are cyclical right empires rise and fall there's not just one progressive endlessly rising historical consciousness yeah yeah and i think you know being being at the tail end of a cycle is not necessarily the the worst part of the cycle to be in. I mean, just just thinking about you know all the all the upheaval and bloodshed that we're probably not going to witness. Um, and and there's also the fact that um, this is a very um, unique constellation in terms of um, technology added to to yeah, just the way the substrate that politics acts on. Uh, this is like just unprecedented. The level of you know connectedness, you know, just the the, the existence of and proliferation of techno capital to the, to the point where we are. There's, you know, I think that the the ultimate black pill is just that you know even if you'd like to influence these things, um, there's not there's not really any lever left. You know, there's not like a machine room where you're like, yeah, we just need to snipe this guy and then, you know. The power will be mine. Um, I don't think there's any way to roll this back, is there? Well, if Curtis Yarvin got his way and we all switched to crypto lock guns, <laughs> maybe, but probably not even then. No, and a thought experiment that I think is really sort of useful, maybe other people think this way, I don't know, is to imagine that you're one of these billionaires, like pick your favorite one, Pick Peter Thiel, and if he's not big enough, you know, pick Elon Musk, the richest man on earth, as far as I can recall at the time of this podcast, right? Let's say you're Elon Musk, and you are also John Winthrop, perhaps, probably not, unless, but no. And you want to take these, these frog Twitter ideas and Bronze Age mindset and so on and try to implement them in some capacity. 
Well, you could argue that Elon Musk is sort of doing that by trying to get to Mars, but it's not at all obvious what you would do. Even if you had all of that money and all of that supposed power, it's a very limited kind of power, right? Like there are always regulators and boards of directors and, and people who could sort of remove your power and your, seize your assets very quickly, uh, what Bap said in Bronze Age Mindset, that Jeff Bezos could not just look down from his tower and see a, a woman on the street and kill her husband and take her as a wife. He can't do that. He doesn't have that power. Any tribal king in like, you know, some undocumented part of South America or Africa could probably do that. So in a way, uh, these, these oligarchs or these billionaires have far less power in some, in some dimensions, even than just like the leader of a band of borderline hunter gatherers. So, but let's say you had all that money. Let's say you had all that, that supposed power of someone like that. And you wanted to turn the world into frog Twitter world. You wanted to make frog norms the norms and you wanted to get rid of all the, all the leftism you see. What would you do? I thought about this from many angles and I really don't know. <laughs> I don't think there's much that you could do. I don't think they know either because I think there are billionaires who are sympathetic to what we say. In fact, I know that there are, and they're not, some of them aren't even shy about it. And they don't, they have their plans. I'm sure they have their secrets that they're not revealing. Why would they? But I don't think they know what to do any more than anyone else. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I'm just thinking <laughs> while you're talking, I was thinking about is there any angle like you could maybe not not really, you know, there's that mold bug piece that people really hated on him for, you know, that, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have any power and where he essentially makes the same argument um, that, yeah, yeah. There's, there's. And he's correct. He's absolutely, absolutely correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I I just uh, I I just wonder. I mean, I've I've worked in these te- these tech companies. I didn't work at Facebook, but I worked in, in some tech companies, and and it it felt like that. I mean, the thing that people were working towards within these organizations was um, it was a kind of an uh, a progressive algorithm to find to make the site more addictive. Essentially, everyone was working towards this one goal. Uh, this was maximizing shareholder, shareholder value. We're doing A-B testing all day. Um, you know, everyone else around it was kind of building around this, this one, you know, one algorithm that, that does this, or, you know, this one website that does this. Um, and, you know, and, and the software in the background was essentially liberalism. So I, I don't really know. There's just no, not even like an, a lever where you could come in and say, "Oh no, no, liberalism is destroying the the optimization function." It didn't really like it, as long as you know A doesn't infect B, or even then, there's not really anywhere to um, yeah to insert yourself to of you know to impose your your new value structure. Right. I mean, so the idea of being a manager, it's not really even quite an ideology. You could say it uses ideology, but I've been thinking about this more. What managers do, middle managers, even even like top level managers, is honestly closer to a tradition than an ideology because it's something that has arisen very organically in the last hundred years or so as people have tried really just every approach they could think of and it's been more of an evolution. The people who were good at getting other people to do work, they were imitated, their practices were documented and, and shared and written down. And over time, it's really, in, in a way, 
managerialism is a modern tradition. And of course it's liberal because it doesn't really care what you do when you're off the clock very much. And you could, I would argue that to the degree that it does care, that's actually defective. That's, that's a failure of it. So what I mean by that is if you go around posting dissident right talking points in your off hours, you are very likely to lose your job if you get docs. Like people will call, you You know, if they know who you are, they can call your company, send a letter like, you know what this Nazi, I use the term tongue in cheek, but you know, you, you know this Nazi saying on Twitter.com and you will get fired. And that's actually a failure of managerialism. It actually, if it were, if it were perfectly effective, if it were perfectly efficient, it would be perfectly liberal. It would say, it doesn't matter what you do in any capacity, as long as you meet your key performance indicators or your objectives and key results or whatever it is. So this is, I think, why you see a lot of people like so-called classical liberals. There's a very strong intersection between that and managerialism. And by the same token, the idea that you can't use an IQ test to screen your candidates, this is also an anti-liberal. This is an illiberal idea masked as a liberal one. Like the perfect managerial regime would use IQ tests. It would perfectly quantify and stratify everyone. And it would say, we know how effective this person is going to be. And it could be, it could be much more efficient. Now, maybe that's a hell world. I think in many ways it probably is, but that would be a pure managerial regime. Yeah. And it's, it's also kind of tied into this idea that, um, you know, there is, um, there is an art to it. And I mean, managerialism is, like you said, essentially there is an art to managing people, to managing systems. And there is, uh, and like you said, it's also more closer to a tradition, but um, it's also the idea that there is a recipe for everything. You know, life is solvable at like a, at, at every level if you just implement the right um, algorithm to it, um, which just does not reflect the actual nature of reality, if you really dig down into it, and that's essentially my 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 problem with um, with you know the the classical liberal set, is that you know this type of rationalism is is by definition naive rationalism. Like you know, if you think about things hard enough, it just it does does not compute. You think people just don't work that way, right? There's a belief that if we just have that that difficult conversation, we can somehow talk it out and we can all just get what we want, but. Sometimes people really do want incompatible things. Sometimes uh, a certain way of being is anathema to others. And I think you know or can guess what I mean. It's really instructive to watch uh, a recent viral interview that a, a reporter was talking to a man from the Taliban. And, you know, she's saying exactly what you would expect a, a left-leaning reporter to say to a man from the Taliban. And he is just, un, he's unwavering. And he says, no, that's not our law. That's not our culture. That's not how we believe, you know, the world should work and how people should be. And uh, it's really a sort of an unstoppable force in movable object moment. Like there's no managerial conversation we're going to have that's going to resolve this dispute, right? Yeah, it's, you know, liberalism purports to be the um, the solution, the kind of the, the rational solution to the problems of, of statecraft, the problems of getting along, the problems of, you know, every, essentially every problem that people have. And I think that's that's essentially <laughs> that's a problem that the sudden right has with it because it isn't it really does not provide solutions. 
uh, either in the classical variant or in the progressive variant. Um, it just uh, some some problems are completely blind. Uh, it is completely blind to, or or just some problems just intractable, like <laughs> the Taliban and. Yeah, the, the answer is that there's there's no universalism. Like it's it's absolutely yeah. insane to think that there's going to be one universal ideology and one universal form of the state that's going to be good enough for everyone, that's going to unite all of humanity or something like that under one banner. The fact is that there are a lot of us. We have different desires. We have resource bottlenecks. This is another thought that I think is wrong, which is that if we just had infinite resources, then no one would fight. We'd all just sort of be fat, wally blobs, and everything would be fine. We just get into our virtual reality pods. Let me tell you, I've read hundreds of stories about pod life for the Passage Prize. I think I really underestimated how much people want to talk about pod life or write these sort of satires of pod life. Some of them are okay. Some of them are just, I don't want to say anything bad about anyone. Almost everyone tried. And... I respect them for trying. And you know what? If there's room for a thousand uh, Harry Potter-derived and Twilight-derived like young adult novels in this world to just be pumped through airport bookstores, I don't even know who buys these things. I presume someone does. There's room for a hundred young adult pod-life novels, too. We should just publish all of them. We should just flood the market and open up like rogue not-for-profit bookstores. I don't mean not-for-profit in the sense of like they're charitable. I mean not-for-profit in the sense of they're taking a loss just as like a culture jamming uh, entity. Like imagine walking through some like gentrified neighborhood and you've probably seen these, these, these bookstores. They're all over the place. They have like the Communist Manifesto and they're window and 20 books by like you know black women of color about like how they got made fun of because their lunch smelled bad like you know that's every single book in the entire shop and uh, they sell enamel pins i will you know, destroy them and pulp their contents imagine a bizarre world where you just saw one of these bookstores and you walked in and instead there were like a hundred young adult novels about pod life they've got bronze age mindset and they had no deepness of earth in the window. Like, what a bizarre... I'm not talking about a, a hypothetical world where, like, that's all okay. I'm saying, what if we built that right now? What, what a parallel universe it would feel like. Imagine walking into such a store. This is my yeah. dream. Billionaires who are in, inevitably listening to this podcast. Please make this a reality. <laughs> Does that move the culture? I don't know. Let's say that you're one of them and you, <laughs> you want to move the culture. Open these bookstores. I'm sure it'll be fine. Exactly. I mean, it's uh, it's practical. It's can be done tomorrow if you have a, a motivated enough workforce and enough money. Even people with hundreds of millions of dollars apply. Please do, and uh, and open these bookstores. <laughs> yeah, we we just have to figure out how to crowdfund these things because now apparently, if you give any money to any right wing cause ever, no matter how benign. Uh, you're going to have your bank accounts frozen and you're going to be forced out of the cold. That seems to be the way we're headed. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a, a pretty scary... I mean, to be honest, that's kind of the, the first time that I was a bit 
you know, a, a bit cautious about this because obviously my bank accounts, I mean, that's one thing. If this extends to families and stuff, I mean, I'm screwed. <laughs> really, it's a... Right. No, I mean, this is this is the most insane, I hate to use this word, but totalitarian thing I have ever witnessed in my life. And I, I, I just, I, I'm at a loss for words about it, honestly. When I look at it, when I see what's happening, I... We talk about like a violent, you know, spasmodic action. Like this is, seems to be a recipe for it. If you, maybe there just aren't enough people whose bank accounts have been frozen. How many people do you have to lock out of commerce before they like do things that I shouldn't talk about on your podcast because FedPost redacted? Mm-hmm. Like probably not that many, right? Like suddenly you find that you're not able to use your credit cards or access your bank accounts. What do you do? Hopefully you have a bunch of gold buried under your mattress, but nothing could happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I can't feed my baby. I'm, I'm, I'm out in the streets. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, you know, redacted hard <laughs> doing something. <laughs> so yeah. Pretty much. yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, they, they can push certain people. I know, I know this has already happened. Like a, f- a few years ago, there's some activists in the UK just completely got frozen out by every, um, yeah, everything. It was it was kind of tied into into white nationalism for a while, but now it seems to be spreading to all sorts of, um, yeah, people who uh, who are not convenient for the regime. Yeah, they've done this to a few people. People who've like named you. I mean, everyone knows of like Andrew England, for example, and a few others too. People who just got kind of unpersoned, not just from. Being, not just being put on no-fly lists, but being put on on all kinds of lists where they just can't do anything. And it's funny because most people will say, oh, well, they did it to some white nationalist. Oh, no, who cares, right? But you only have to be able to think one, one level of removal, which apparently many people can't do, to, to see why that should be absolutely terrifying. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's... It is terrifying for me <laughs> in, in my my personal situation now. I mean, on, on the one hand, I also kind of imagine that it feels very like spasmodic what they're doing now. It's very, it feels very like, you know, they're, they're being cornered a little bit and it's, it's quite aggressive. All of this stuff, like, you know, what's happening in Canada, just, just ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, I realize that my perspective on these things is highly... Um, filtered by my sources of information. And I can imagine that people who are just, you know, normies in Canada receive like, like a whole wall of, of propaganda about, you know, these, these, you know, demons in the streets trying to, I don't eat their children and uh, how they should be completely unpersoned. And um, I think, you know, once you just scroll through the timeline of someone who's, who's on that side, you can see that, um, the warping of reality that's happening um you know even if it's it's a bit crazy and you know it's it's um strident and you can see you know even even normie can kind of see that there is an angle to these things um it's so relentless and there's so many people involved in it and it's you know there's so much money behind it that it's i don't know it's really hard to see what's what's crazy is you see them calling for blood and i mean like the 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 patsies of the state, right? Like you can find all these blue checks saying it basically like, you know, we need to send in the military. We need to move out all these truckers. Like they, they would feel no remorse. They wouldn't even blink if they heard that all those people were mowed down on the streets, like by men with guns, that would yeah. be fine to them. And to a certain extent, 
I actually get where they're coming from because I have the exact same feeling about the Black Lives Matter protests. Like, I truly have not a shred of human sympathy for anyone who participates in that kind of writing. So maybe this is a weird thing to say, but I actually do get it. I'm not going to sit here and condemn them on like some humanitarian basis and say, oh, no, how could they call for death? No, calling for death is actually the, like, that's the default. That's the baseline. That's where we're at right now. <laughs> and uh, from my Canadian friends that I talk to, this is the other thing. Canadians are like, we, when I think of Canadians, I think of the most like peaceful, uh, pacifist, really just friendly to a fault people, right? Like, has anyone ever said, like, okay, I actually have seen a couple of videos of Canadian street violence uh, around these protests. People are people. They're going to do it. But no one, no one thinks of Canadians as hot-headed. No one thinks of them as a violent people. And my Canadian friends, who are admittedly all dissidents, say that the normal Canadians all love the truckers. Like, this propaganda isn't hitting for them. Everyone likes them. They, they just see a bunch of nice, normal family people who genuinely are peacefully protesting, and the, the Canadian state looks like a bully. So I believe that. Yeah, that's, that's heartening to hear. Um, um, I mean, I, that's, that's what I hope. But sometimes, you know, because there is, there is a bit of a kind of internet myopia that I, I know I have, a, I can't escape it as well. You know, by selecting my own sources of information, I just, yeah, and I, I see what I see. Yeah, we, we all live in bubbles of, of information distortion, and that's completely true. And things that, you know, you or I might think are a big deal or like important news events in the last month or year. If you talk to someone like the NPR listening set, they haven't heard of any of those things. And they have their own set of allegations with like, you know, your, your people did this or that or whoever my people are. So it's important to be aware of those reality warps, but I, they're irreconcilable. There's just the most you can do is throw up your hands and say, oh, well, both sides suck. But we hate that. Everyone hates that. They hate it and we hate it. Both sides. Did you really just say that? <laughs> Yeah, I think the, the 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 main difference between uh, our side and their side is that um, they're kind of pretending that these aspects of human nature aren't real. Well, the main difference is that our side is good and noble and wise, and everyone on it has a heart of gold. We all want what's best for everyone, and they are scoundrels and liars and perverts, and that's just the way of it. <laughs> Not to cut you off there. I mean, I'm sure, like two or three of them could be rescued. But yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> yes. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah. Find me, find me, uh, you know, 10, 10 good people. <laughs> well, maybe find one. <laughs> yeah, what, what, what sets them apart? Like what defines the liberal mind in, in your perspective? There are so many condescending answers to that question, which I think <laughs> illuminate nothing. Let's go through those and then we can get to the real one. <laughs> um, I mean, the prevailing... I think like, okay, I think it's biological. I think it's not something that's socially constructed. It's not something in your culture per se, not the culture can't impact it. Like here's the hardest environment or hardest argument I can make for environment determines outcomes. If you feed your baby lead, bad things will happen to your baby, right? So obviously environment does matter. You drop the baby on the head, look, environment matters. But as far as like the more subtle things, does someone grow up to be liberal or conservative? 
I do think a lot of it's in the genes. We can see this if you really want to go to studies and talk about heritability, but the the discredited and debunked idea of RK selection, I think, is really primary here. There are sort of two different strategies for an organism, and one is kind of lots of low-quality offspring, resource glut, consume everything, make as much, make as many babies as you can and hope some of them persist in the next generation. And then there's the case selection, which is the opposite. It's the slow life history approach where you want to uh, make a few high quality offspring, nurture them. In some sense, this is related to time preference, right? Like high time preference is R selection and low time preference is case selection. I don't think all these things perfectly map to each other. And you will find people who are K selected, who are high time, or sorry, who are low time preference, who are on the left side. And you will find R selected types on the right side. And you talk about this recent Twitter CAD versus TRAD. I, I think that's TRAD probably isn't the best way to capture it, but sure, TRAD versus CAD. In a sense, that's the case selected people, the trads trying to purge the R selected people and saying, look, if you let all these, all these R selected types in and you invite them because they, like they read Bronze Age mindset and what they got out of it was, oh, you know, I better just go to nightclubs and become a pickup artist, which is not the message, right? They say you have to purge those people because ultimately if you let them in, that's how you get liberalism. That's how you get communism. That's how you get all these things. Uh, communism is a biological phenomenon. But at the same time, you find these, you will find these people, these good people, these high time or these low time preference case selected people on the left. And I work with many of them, like the people in, in tech, for example, the ones who aren't perverts, they often tend to be very smart. They tend to be slow. They're conservative in their personal approach to their life, but they believe in what Robin Hansen would call like far mode. They're looking at the world from very far away from a zoomed out sort of perspective and every person they meet, regardless of their race, regardless of their religion, is smart, is competent, is also low time preference. And they think, oh, everyone's just the same. You know, the, the thugs out in the, in the street, like stealing widescreens are exactly like Tyrell in the engineering department, you know, they're, they just, they had a rough life. What they're doing is understandable. And it's not, it's not the case at all. I think, I think that's the major distortion. I think that they just, they're good people. They're, and what I mean by that is they do what daddy, the state tells them. They do what the TV tells them. The TV says, if you want to be a good person, everyone's the same. They're all just misunderstood. Poverty causes crime. Poverty causes violence, not the other way around. By the way, this is the truth. Violence causes poverty. People are violent. It makes them poor. Not people are poor. It makes them violent, right? And, and I think that's what's happening. Because if you talk to these people, they're so smart, a lot of them. They're very intelligent. They understand mathematics. They understand, uh, they even like read. They read literature. They can, I sound like Curtis Yarvin here, but they're not stupid. They're just retarded. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've worked with these people as well. These people, um, they're they're the people that we can save those three or four people that we can save. Um, (laughs) it's, uh, I remember I had this interaction with with my boss at one point and I just, I kind of in passing just told him like, realize that we haven't interacted with a person with like sub 120 IQ for maybe years, <laughs> at least. There's definitely none of them in this building. And he was just like, it took him a while to take it in. But then I could see him, he was pondering it for a few for a few more days afterwards. It was just like, hmm, you know, at least a minor red fill for him. Like, hmm, what yeah. does this mean? What does this imply? Well, I'll let you mull this over, man. <laughs> <laughs> Typical mind's fallacy rules everything around me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, You've also um, said some things about COVID. COVID. We're not out of COVID yet. <laughs> we're in COVID. Last time we spoke, we're still in COVID. Um, and uh, the fact that, you know, people kind of have this kind of daddy fetish with COVID. And uh, it feels to me like, you know, finally the, the gods of science come into your home and muzzle your children. And finally, there's more <laughs> of an, an interaction with, with the, high, the high spirits of, of, of liberalism. You know, they were very far away up until now, but now they're in your house just abusing you physically, which is probably very satisfying. <laughs> I suppose that it is. Yeah, I, I think that the take here, not my take, right, Twitter's a hive mind, and, and every every ideology is a hive. Like, what's actually been very striking to me is sometimes I'll go on this podcast, Break the Rules. Uh, you've probably seen it. It's got Geo and Love. Yeah. And they'll get five or six people off of Twitter, often accounts that I've never heard of, people with, like, maybe not a lot of followers, and they'll talk about current events, whatever the news cycle is that day. And I'm always struck by the fact that everyone, no matter what, like their account size or, uh, you know, their, whether, whether I've heard of them or not, they all know the answer and they all know the same answer. Like whatever, whatever the event is, they all have the take. They all have pretty much the same take. And if you dig into that take, they all have the same supporting ones as well. Like whether it's the seed oils meme, uh, you know, whether it's talk about like what's, what's motivating people. In, in their latest lie that they're perpetrating, it's all the same. So the take on that is on, on COVID is that it, it will wind down, but it's the same as, as 9-11. We still have to take our shoes off when we go through airports. You know, the first time there was like ever violence on an airplane, they added metal detectors or those type of scanners. Every time there's some new act of terrorism or violence involving an airplane, they ramp up the security. That never goes away. They have those full, like full body, like scans that probably are giving us cancer, but not as fast as the vaccine is. And COVID is going to be the same way. It's like, yeah, it'll ramp down. People will drop the hysteria, even as the regulation, like even as the crazy stuff sort of stops. The bureaucratic machine that was spun up to deal with the problem is not going to go away. And a lot of those security measures are not going to go away. We'll see how, how mandatory vaccines are, but you can see like these, these CDC people, they're absolutely salivating at the possibility of a booster subscription plan. None of this is original or unique to me, right? Like anyone on Twitter, you could have told anyone they would have told you that because that's just, it's just self-evidently the case. 
Yeah, but it's extra spicy because no one in, in, in mainstream media thinks about it. And it's it's inevitably going to come true in six months, which is why this, this, the dissident right is good. And they'll all say, oh, no, no, you don't know that. There's no evidence for that. No one's claiming that. Yeah, like, how mind-killed do you have to be <laughs> to not yeah, see... extrapolate, you idiot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's everything we said was going to happen is happening. Um you also had, um, I mean, you have a kind of a continuous war with the with the rationalists, with the rats and post rats and <laughs> rat adjacents. <laughs> and uh, I've, I think I've asked you before what's wrong with them. I guess if, I think people kind of know, or maybe they don't. But it's uh, you know, I talk about the, the the pitfalls of rationalism here as well a lot. But I think what wasn't your latest uh, interaction about veganism? You posted something about veganism, not very kind to the vegans, um, and you know. It's uh, it, it kind of, yeah, pe- people didn't feel comfortable <laughs> with your takes on me. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. Lately, so you have a sense, at least I do, of how big a tweet is going to go. Not always. Like, that sense isn't perfectly calibrated, but I think it's way better than 50%. And if I sense that the take is going to go big, I mute it immediately. And I don't even read any of the responses or any of the quote tweets because that is the kind of thing that will just eat you alive if you do. Like, I spoke what I wanted to say, and I will confess, sometimes I'm deliberately inflammatory. Sometimes I'm less than charitable to my enemies. I am only human. If you prick us, do we not bleed? But it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. So a lot of the time, I don't even know what those people are saying. And uh, here's something that happens that I think is fun, is I will find people, some of them I've heard of, some of them I've never even seen before, and they're, they're screenshotting my tweets, they're, they're crawling my account, they're getting so mad about it. Like, awesome. You, you do that. You go see in a corner. I have better things to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, veganism is just one of those things that it's going to get people's uh, attention, and there's just there's just so much push. I mean, I feel like there's almost kind of like an astroturf push towards that. I also understand that it's you know it's kind of an extension of, of universalism, so it makes sense as just like a you know the continued pace of liberalism, you know, in, inflating uh, egalitarianism and universalism beyond the, the 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 boundaries of being human. But it also feels like you know, it's it's just the biggest cope to me of veganism. It's like just, you know, turning your back on nature and saying, um, yeah, nature's not just one big, you know, blind meat grinder. And there's not, you know, really animals that are called predators, which who have only, you know, one occupation is to just, you know, grind the bones of other smaller animals, which they every day kill. Uh, it's, it's just to me like, oh, you know, that's, that's just, you know, Disney, Disney movie stuff. And we're just going to, you know, continue here. We're going to evolve beyond this. Uh, it's just that the parameters of the thing that you're trying to evolve beyond are just not yours to, to negotiate. I mean, that's, uh, maybe that's my cope. Right. So it's, it's funny. This is actually biblical, right? I mean, it says that the lion will lie down with the lamb. So we can sort of assume that maybe in some like post return of Christ world, all the animals really are vegan or something like that. It occurred to me just now that in a few years they'll push to legalize zoophilia and there will be peta ads that are like, how can you like eat your lover or something like that? (laughs) I'm 
that's so that's, Next that's the place story has to be this. <laughs> oh god. That's the place where they will try to take it. What I will say about that whole topic is that food taboos and food like rules are extremely important. Like they're they're very basic to everyone. Like every person nearly has some kind of food rule. And you can see that in uh in frog Twitter too. There was clearly an underserved market for weird rules about what to eat. And Ray Pete perfectly filled that uh, that market gap, right? Everyone wants to believe from all the way to like the, the most isolated, like voodoo practicing, you know, like uh, subsistence foragers in some jungle, all the way up to like the billionaires and the people living in their giant futurist glass towers. We all want to follow certain weird rules about food, whether it's veganism, whether it's no seed oils and tons of saturated fat from animals, ketosis. In California, it's kind of their famous for spawning like a new fat diet every six months or something like that. I don't know if you know any Californians, but they're perpetually finding new rules about food to follow. And I think this is just something that's baked in. People want it. And I've also, like, it's not even a rational desire. It's just something deep, deep in the, the way that we've evolved, perhaps. We want to not eat certain things. We want to feel like, oh, those foods are poison. Those foods are not poison. And this is a really rational way to be, actually, because in nature, there are, most things are poisonous. So it's, it's easy to see why we would sort of have a, an inborn affinity for food taboos. And something that I've observed also is people who they find a food taboo and it doesn't have to be rational at all. It can just be some guru saying to them, Oh, you know what you need to do? You need to cut out this ingredient and you need to start eating like way more of this other thing. And there's zero of any, like the justification can be non-existent, but they'll pick that up. And then immediately, once you start adhering to that taboo, you are now in a community of people who also adhere to it. And so food becomes a, a venue for all sorts of other ideological premises to start sneaking in. If you always eat this certain way, all your friends do too, you can't go to restaurants with people who don't, and suddenly you find that you're accepting all their other beliefs, whether it's some crazy like uh, cult of maybe... I, I knew Christians who became vegan who stopped being Christian mm. is a, a great way to sum that up. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that definitely makes sense. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's it's one of the acts that you perform, you know, three four times a day. It's a it's a communal act. Um, it it has all sorts of ritual powers. Uh, it's even beyond the the taboos. You know, just the the importance of food to to be life sustaining is just yeah. It it makes sense that people yeah that people guide their lives around it. Um, and yeah, I mean, being part of uh, kind of crunchy granola mommy circles and, and kind of this adjacent to the dissident right, because not, not not many like hard right women who <laughs> just talking about politics and babies all day. Um, but there's, there's, there are a lot of food taboos and it's very strict, very strict. Don't, don't you slip in some canola oil to that baby or <laughs> you're going to thrown out of the mommy club. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, 
I think we're coming slowly coming up on time. And I want to ask you, leave a bit of space for the question of the show. Because I was looking through your comments and I think you thought about another book or another thinker. Um, So uh, is there a subversive thinker, writer, author, living or dead, any sort of um, cultural icon that should be more iconic, should be more interesting to people? Well, I'm going to give you a really sort of trite answer this time because you may have seen it. Someone did a thread of all the like book recommendations on your show so far. And I don't think I saw this book on that list, uh, even though it's, it's, like I said, not an uncommon recommendation. But people need to read more of Burnham. They need to read The Managerial Revolution. They need to read The Machiavellians. They need to read what's it called? The Suicide of the West, I think. I haven't actually read that one. Yeah. But these are very important books. And yeah, it's definitely called The Suicide of the West, James Burnham. It's like, this is, this is table stakes. Read, read, read James Burnham. If I, I saw someone saying the other day that the right in America should have taken after Burnham instead of whoever it was that they did take after, and we'd be living in a very different world right now because he called all of it. Like he really just he lays it out. He understood politics uh, in a way that I don't think any of the actual like conservatives that we that we maybe associate like the big names of people who popularized it. Certainly, someone like uh, I'm sorry, I'm Buchanan and blanking on like So even Buchanan, Buchanan is sort of someone I I wish had gotten more traction. But anyway, Burnham is the person that you should read. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's that's my suggestion. Not not particularly original. But no, yeah. it's 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 a really important one. I think I I probably I mean the Machiavellian is definitely the most um, clarifying book on politics I've ever read, um, and very very appealing uh, in many directions. Um, and uh, I think I think it was Burnham's recommended once. Uh, very recently, an episode that's only on Patreon. Uh, Pedro Gonzalez recommended Burnham, and he recommended Sam Francis as well. So I overlap with Americans. This is not good. What? <laughs> uh, Pedro. Oh, well, I should. Oh no! <laughs> but I. <laughs> Are you enemies? Talking about talking about the. I mean, we're not. But talking about the the narcissism of small differences and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. It, it's a hard one. Um, Pedro is a, a face poster, obviously. He's, uh, he's gotten quite a lot of traction in the mainstream, I mean, mainstream, the right wing mainstream media. He's been on Fox and, you know, he's, he's definitely been, been feeding off of these spaces, but I don't think he makes a, um, like a secret of it. And uh, yeah, he's, he's a very based guy. It's, at least in, in in many respects. So I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm friendly with him. I think he's uh he's a smart guy. He's written some cool stuff. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't know where people's yeah, no. friend enemy line is anymore. But uh, yeah, no one does. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> well, hopefully, uh, we can do this a third time, still way within this line of the friend enemy description of whatever faction we're going to be in in x x months time. Uh, and I thank you so much for coming on. Um, I would like to point people towards buying your NFT, but that's impossible. Is there like a, a secondary market where people can haggle over over the NFT? There, there is. If you if you go to canonic.xyz, there are still a few copies available for an exorbitant price. 
And if you buy them, I get a small cut. So definitely do that. Just like raise the price up, spend as much money as you want on my book. No price is too high. It is a pearl of great price. Excellent. All billionaires need to have a copy of at exactly. least also multimillionaires. Come, come the revolution, the physical book will protect you from the right-wing uh, squad. Yeah, it's like Havel's Greengrocer, but it's, uh, it's got exactly. a, like an octopus on it. It's, it's pretty cool. We're, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Um, well, I am very happy you came on. Um, this was really fun. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, always a pleasure. Uh, and yes, I look forward to doing it again at the risk of sounding like a wholesome chungus. <laughs> well, you know, wholesome chungus uh, is uh, is very appreciated here. Uh, I'm going to point people towards your Twitter. It's, you know, 0HP Lovecraft, very complex sequence of numbers, but just type it in. It's there. Uh, and uh, you also have a blog. Your uh, All of your stories are online. Put the name into your search engine of choice. Even Google can find it. So... It's, uh, yeah, every, everything that Zero has ever written uh, is out there and well worth your time. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash subversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 